This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. If you're using a Bible that's provided on one of the side racks, you'll find it on page 921. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to grab one of those, follow along with the sermon, and then take it home with you as a gift from us. We'd love to have, for you to have a copy of God's Word to read and follow along with in your own uh, personal life. We wanted to begin 2023 with a continuation of sermons that we began last year on our mission and vision. And we began, if you remember, with a statement of identity. And that statement was this. University Park Baptist Church is a redeemed people gathered together by the grace of God for the glory of God. And there you see it on the screen. Uh, We are, UPBC, a redeemed people by the blood of Christ. We're gathered together by the grace of God for the glory of God. That's who we are as a church Then we said that we express our vision for ministry with four M's, mission, message, ministry, and motivation. And we've worked through some of these already. Our mission is to be faithfully urgent in making and maturing disciples as we preach the gospel from southwest Houston to the ends of the earth. If you want to know what is this church about, that's it. That's our our mission, faithfully urgent, making and maturing disciples here from southwest Houston to the ends of the earth. And then the next M, message. What is our message? What are we saying? It's that there is a God who made all things, who is holy and righteous. God is. And that God has spoken to us in his word. He's revealed to us who he is and our sin. And he has made a way to save us. And then he will send us to proclaim his glory and preach the gospel to the Nations. God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. And then he's given us a ministry. And among other things, that ministry and all that it is takes place in a context and is centered around the local church, the gathered group of believers that is God's program for spreading his glory to the nations. God has purchased a people, the church, and has, has sought to receive glory as that church, Ephesians 3.21 Um, honors him and preaches the gospel. And then finally, the last M, our motivation, what drives us? It's the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us. And that last M is the focus of our sermon today. Uh, And it is much more than a motivation. It's not less than a motivation. It does drive us, but it's even more than that. And so I want us to start by just praying together Uh, asking God to show us what that means, to be compelled, or as the ESV says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, even controlled by the love of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we do pray that your spirit would fall on this place. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would do a work among us. Sometimes we look at things in the word and in our lives and they, we see them with our eyes, but we don't really see them. And we can even talk about them and traffic in them with, in all kinds of ways and just it doesn't really make its way to our hearts and our lives. 
So Lord, I just really pray that you would do that miracle. Lord, that you would do that in me and that you would do that in us as a congregation, that we would really be changed by the gospel. We'd be transformed and that we would look like Jesus, that our lives would be lives that are lives of love, love that we've seen in Christ. So Lord, we pray you would do this by your strength, well, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was pretty deeply discouraged at the end of last year. And my focus, my focus was on several areas of my life. Church life, family life, other things that just weren't going the way that I wanted them to go. And I found, I don't know about you, but in my walk with the Lord, it's these times when I'm weakest or down or broken that I become much more aware of my neediness for Jesus. We're always needy. We always are desperate. We always are helpless apart from him. But, but whittling away these supports that we build in our lives, it has a way of weakening our pride and showing us that we really do need him. I have a lot of pride and the Lord reminds me of that and, and has weakened me in areas and I'm so grateful for it. But I found myself in Philippians too. It was Christmas, okay, so that's a place to go. Uh, but then several other places in Paul's letters that, and it really just began to give me this picture. And you know, we're talking about vision, so I'm going to use that word. It gave me a vision, new vision, a, a picture of what my life should be like and it's not new. It's not crazy it just looks like Jesus a life that looks like Jesus uh, we're gonna by the way we're gonna spend a lot of time over the next year maybe uh, in the gospel of Luke Lord willing looking at Jesus so the sermon series in Luke is called seeing Jesus so I hope that you'll just prepare your heart and be excited about that that's coming um, starting on January the 22nd but that's what I want to do in this sermon is just hold out a vision of what it looks like um, to be united to Jesus by faith, and it's a life of love. That's simply what it is. That's really the main point of this sermon. If you want to write it down, this is it. The, the gospel creates a life of Christ-like love. The gospel creates a life of Christ-like love. Both halves of that sentence are important. The order is important. So if you say, I have the gospel, I'm saved, but there's no life of love, at some level, we all have different areas of sanctification, but at some level, no life of love, then I'm going to point you back to the gospel and ask, are we really saved? Do I really have the gospel? The opposite is true. If there's a, a life of good, selfless deeds, good works, but no gospel, then we've missed it completely. Let me just illustrate that with two uh, figures from church history that you're going to know, Mother Teresa and Martin Luther. I saw this from a book that I read from Paul Miller. I thought it was helpful. Martin Luther is, of course, maybe the most prominent Reformation theologian. Uh, his rediscovery of the gospel changed the world. His preaching was consistently gospel-centered throughout his ministry. You, you can't hardly say justification by faith alone without thinking of Martin Luther. 
But there were some ways in which he practically failed to love others. And I just want to say, I hope no one writes a biography about me. Okay, I've read a lot of these biographies and every single time there's wonderful things and there's these hard things. Well, there's some hard things in Martin Luther's life too. Historians would say that he became increasingly bitter as he got older, especially toward Jewish people. And when he would write about Jewish people, sometimes there were bright spots and things that he would say. But then he wrote this piece called The Jews and Their Lies. And it's just terrible. Absolutely terrible. So there can be a foundation for what is right with gaping blind spots in practical love. A right understanding of the gospel creates a a life of love. And I think a good question for us is to say, are there gaps, blind spots for us who would say, we want to be, we want to really be focused on this right understanding of the gospel. That's one example. Another example is Mother Teresa. She provides an example kind of in the opposite direction, maybe the opposite problem, a picture, living, breathing picture of the love of Christ, loving the lowest, the dying, the poor. She said that when she cared for the dying, she cared for Christ. She experienced Christ as she loved the dying and the fellowship of his sufferings. She is an amazing example. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But she missed, if you read even the things that she's written about her own walk with the Lord, the foundation. She would merge her loving others with her justification by faith. And so she never had a clear conscience before God. She always doubted and scrutinized not just her relationship with the Lord, but, but her service as not being correctly done or not having enough contrition. And later in life, it even seems like she almost took pride in it, which happens when we focus on our work. So instead of looking to Jesus, she looked at her life and was not at peace. So a, listen, a life of love is not the gospel. The gospel creates a life of love, but a life of love is not the gospel. There's a biblical bullseye here that we want to see, and I think we see it in Scripture. We're not going to hit it perfectly, but man, we're going to shoot for it. Because the gospel in all of its glory, power, and wonder creates a life of Christ-like love, living and loving like Jesus. That's our vision. The gospel saves and shapes us. In other words, Christians are called to embody this life and love, the love and life of Jesus in the world. That shapes everything from our conversations to how we think about money to missions, marriage, loving the poor, preaching, sharing the gospel, counseling, encouraging one another. It's the love of Christ that compels us. And so our home base this morning is Philippians, but we're going to jump around a little bit. So be ready to do some some of that. I'm just going to make two points if you're taking notes. Number one, the gospel. Number two, a life of love. Number one, the gospel. Number two, a life of love. And listen, be a Berean here. Don't just, don't just think, man, this is cool what he said. Look to see if it's in the text. See if what I'm saying is there. And then you need to ask, well, then if it's there, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? So we begin with the gospel from Philippians 2. Probably fresh on your mind. We heard it read It's just been Christmas, and so it's been on our hearts. But you see the essence of the gospel there in verses uh, 6 and following, verses 6 to 11. So let's read that again. I'm not going to preach a sermon on Philippians 2. I'd love to, but let's just read these verses. So much here. Speaking of Jesus, verse 6, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope that if you visit our church every Sunday for the next year, you hear some version of those words every single Sunday. Some articulation of the story of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Jesus Christ, Paul says here, was God, the second person of the Trinity. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I think it's interesting just to think about how exactly opposite that is of Adam in the garden. Adam was not God. He was a man made from the dust. And yet, what was he doing? Grasping to be God. Grasping to be like God. He thought of it, that if he, if he ate from the forbidden tree, he would be like God. Friends, that's why Jesus came. We all sit in that same chair, grasping for that, for that authority. We've all rebelled and sinned against God and wanted his throne for ours. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which was his right, but instead took the downward path, the descent of love. By first, by becoming man and becoming a baby in Mary's womb, then a baby on the outside of, into the, into the world, in a food trough, and then living a fleshly existence that led to the cross. See, our sin is so terrible and deep that we need a substitute who will live for us and die for us. Live for us, earning a righteousness that we can't earn for ourselves, and die for us, paying the penalty for the sin that we have earned. Jesus lived a righteous life of love, never sinning, always honoring his Father. And then he died. And he took on himself the punishment, the judgment for our sins. His humility culminates in the wrath-bearing cross where he dies for sinners. Friends, that's not the only way the wrath of God can be taken care of. There is another way. There's only one other way. And it's for each individual sinner to bear that wrath for eternity in hell. That will also assuage the wrath of God in conscious torment for eternity, which every single person who dies apart from Jesus Christ experiences. Let that reality land on us. That's why Jesus endured the cross. And that's what he endured on the cross. He paid the price. Imagine that. Just for, just for me. An eternal punishment for me. But for all of those who would turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ. Imagine what he endured. And then he died and he was buried in a tomb. And three days later he rose from the grave. Triumphant over sin and death. Ascends to the right hand of the Father and is coming again. And one day, one day soon, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Our prayer for you is that if you have not done that, that you would do that now. That you would submit to Jesus as your Lord now. Friends, we'll never outgrow this message. We never get too smart for this. It's never elementary. It's foundational. So if you're here, if you're a non-Christian, this is your hope. It's on offer. If you're, if you're just struggling with this and wondering about this, just stick around here for a while. Talk to people. Help, and we will try to help you understand what this means. But it's so simple. Put your trust in Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Put your trust in Jesus. Believe that he rose from the dead. And you'll be saved. We'd love to talk to you more about that if you have questions. If you're here and you're a Christian, we come to this place. We come to Calvary over and over again to be reminded there, this, is, this is not in us. We don't have it in us to save ourselves. He has to save us. And when we're in Christ, we are safe and secure, righteous and accepted forever. This is the good news, the best news ever told. There's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. He's our only hope. Romans 3, 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith, Apart from the works of the law. Justified means declared righteous before God. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from the works of the law. You can't earn it. Run to Christ by faith. Rejoice. Get in on this. This is amazing grace. This is the gospel. Justified, counted righteousness. Counted righteous through the faith we have in Christ. That's the gospel. And that gospel creates a life of love. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time in this message on. So that's number one, the gospel. We see it in Philippians 2. Now let's look at the life of love. And uh, what we're going to notice is Paul embeds this, this essential presentation of the gospel in a, in a command to the church to, to love, to live like Jesus. So this is more than just a WWJD bracelet. I'm all for those. I think they're great reminders, but there is something here that you need to see that Christ purchased for you to live that way. There's power in the Christian life to live that way. So Paul says, look at the gospel story and know that's now your story. Your union with Christ is a spiritual reality. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ by faith. But then there's also this present reality that it takes on. You are in Christ in real life. And so we're going to see that here in Philippians 2. Let's, let's just start kind of working our way out kind of from where he's left off in verse 6. Let's look at verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. Have this mind in yourselves. This means we don't just stop at believing verses 6 to 11. He now calls us to have the same mind among ourselves which he says is yours in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ. You have his mind. And now you have a a blueprint for life and ministry. Love like Jesus loved. Live like Jesus lived. Well, what does that mean? Well, you should read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see. But you could also just go back through verses 6 to 11. Think about those verses and what Jesus did and and how that applies when Paul says, you need to have that same mind in yourself. We don't have equality with God. But we have other things that are ours 
rightly ours, our time, our money. Maybe there's a particular status in the community that we're in that we would have or a level of authority that we would have. Maybe it's just the the sense that we know we're right in a particular argument or conversation. We're called not to grasp at it. Don't, Don't grasp at life. Be willing to lose it and humble yourselves. Lay down your rights, what we think we deserve, and go low for the good of someone else. And friends, there are a thousand ways and times that this fork in the road happens in your life every single day. You know, I need to take out the trash this afternoon and I'm, I, I, I know I have earned the right to sit in my chair and read a book and drink coffee. I, I've earned that. It's my right. It's my house, my chair. There's small, little small things that we need to think we're just confronted all the time. And then there's, there's bigger things. There's, there's just maybe just a, something that looks normal, kind of a general avoidance of, of messy relationships. Think about that. I, I'm just going gonna, gonna to mind my own business as a Christian. I'm not going to get super involved with the people around me. I'm going to keep my nose clean. I'm going to kind of keep a distance. I'm going to attend church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to be nice to people. Hey, I'm not having an affair. I have good theology. But there's not a whole lot of sacrifice. Not a lot of room in my schedule for, for, for making, making room for someone else or, or for, for taking on someone else's problems into my life. Paul says, be like Jesus. Have this mind. Instead of grasping at your rights, descend in love, humility, in love others. Enter into someone else's world, their problems, their suffering. Jesus didn't love us from a distance. Have this mind, brothers and sisters, not from a distance. He came to be one of us. He incarnated to save us. We all know the difference, don't we, between loving someone on the periphery and then getting totally involved in a situation that requires all we have. I'll have one child who will remain nameless. Who one time we we're standing around a swimming pool. I wasn't there. And he fell in. He was young. I mean he jumped in. Couldn't swim. Down at the bottom of the pool. You have a choice at that moment. How are you going to. What are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to send a, a life raft. You're going to take a pole and stick it down there. And hope he knows how to. Or are you going to jump in? He needed someone to jump in and get wet. To save him. To get him out. Jesus took on flesh. He entered our world and went as low as you can go. That's love. That's our blueprint. One thing I did this week, it was great. I think I did about 1% of this that I could do. Was I, I took a few minutes to talk to a few families in our church who, have, who are loving people like this and have loved people like this. And it's absolutely amazing. Encouraging. I, want, I wanted to, I had an intention to just sort of tell these stories and just highlight, hey, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. You should know about this, this is happening. But I realized that, that one of the things that makes these things so beautiful is that they're anonymous, they're quiet, they're in the background, and that they want it to stay there. And I think that's great. So I, my plan was a little bit foiled. But I am going to say a few things. 
pictures of, of what I would call one-way love. Love that's uneven. It goes, it goes one way and then that person kind of fades into the background and there's no recognition. What I don't want is... What I, here's, here's what I don't want. I don't want us to, to only kind of celebrate and think, man, the person who stands up front and preaches and teaches... And, and, and expounds on the Bible. That's kind of where it's at. That's, that's, that's the thing that we're most excited about as a church. That's the strongest part of the, of the body that we want to highlight. I, I think there's some real dangers there. And not highlighting some of the wonderfully beautiful, powerful things that are happening all over the church. People that are, people that are loving in a way that, listen, it's just a lot easier for me to stand up here and preach and sit down than it is to commit a life to jump in the pool with somebody day in and day out and love them. Some people in our, some families in our church have, have done this. Uh, they've loved people who were low and that they didn't have a place, even a place to live. And they committed to love and provide and care for and bear with and go all in with someone that couldn't give them anything in return. Now listen, I don't want to, I want to paint a false picture. Like everybody should go do that too this afternoon. Um, it's not a romantic thing. It's a grind. It's a long-term commitment. It, it, when we love like this, whatever the situation is, it reveals sins in us because it shows our idols. It, it requires persistence, uh, knowing when to be tough and when to be tender. And it, it has to always be a, a team effort. So I don't, want you, I don't want someone to get so excited and they leave and they're like, hey, um, we're going to start an orphanage in our backyard. And, you know, you, it's got to... Family's got to be on board. Every part of the family. I heard that a lot this week. Family's got to be on board when we do these kind of things. It's got to be a, it's got to be a team effort. Because it comes at a great cost. Right? It's just the model of Philippians 2. It, there's a great descent and cost to love like this. You might call it a death. That, that money could have been spent on other things. That time could have been used in other ways. But, but man, this tangible generosity, this love, this Christ-like dying for the sake of others, it ends up producing a resurrection. It ends up producing a life that's changed. It ends up, people, other people want to see it, and it's contagious enough that they want to get involved on it and be a part of it. There's a new hope and stability that couldn't have been there apart from that love. Praise God. I just, I'll just say that. Praise God that he's doing that in our midst. And there are so many other examples. I was thinking about this even last night of families that have just taken and adopted people into their homes for a season who needed a place to live. That's a commitment. Got to feed them. Got to have a place for them to sleep and deal with all the things. That that has happened over and over again. Paul says this is the shape that our lives are to take. A life that's shaped like Jesus' life. So let's, that's, that's, let's move a little bit further out. That's verse 5. Let's look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These aren't just extra virtues that sweeten the Christian life. Paul's saying this is the Christian life. Counting others more significant than yourselves. That looks and smells like Jesus. There was no one more significant than Jesus. 
And he took this downward descent to love to bring others to salvation. He did it. Paul, this this all-encompassing word, nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition. How convicting. I was literally writing this part in the sermon and some things in my life fell apart. And these are not crazy things. This is like some stuff to do with scheduling uh, baseball. And, and as I'm writing it, I'm wanting to do some... Uh, my thought life isn't great at that moment. And I just, I just saw, again, my flesh kind of bubble up, bubble up to the top. How much different would my life be if I started every conversation, every ministry project, every evening at home with the family, or every lunch with this mindset? Consider this person more significant than me. I'm going to serve this person. I'm going to listen I'm going to get in their world so that I can truly help them and serve them. So yeah, I realize that a lot of my discouragement is rooted in selfish ambition being torn down. Self, Travis's plan, getting torn down. So verse 14 is particularly convicting, right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Yeah. I've been, in, I've been doing ministry for a while, so I've been, I've been around a little bit of grumbling and disputing. And sometimes there's a constant negativity, a low hum. But friends, I think that almost always is rooted in this self getting out of control. Thinking that everything is about me. Paul Tripp tells a story about a young five-year-old who's at a birthday party. And it's not his birthday party. It's a young girl's birthday party. And he looks over at all her presents, stack of presents, and he's got little party favors. He looks at her presents. He looks at his party favors. And he just starts sticking out his lower lip, crossing his arms and kind of humph. (laughs) And one of the moms notices and just kind of brings his head down and says right in his face, Johnny, this isn't your party. This isn't your party. I always think it's my party. (laughs) What's at the root of your grumbling, your complaining, your negativity? Is it maybe that self has gotten out of control in our lives? When our idea of life doesn't work out, we grumble and complain. But it's not about us. This life isn't about me anymore. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5. You don't have to turn there, but that's, the, that's what we attach to this, this, this phrase. It's where we got it from in the, in the vision. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. Or compels us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So that he died, so that I would live this way. I would know this is not my life, it's his life. He purchased a non complaining life that is now his. Look at the way Paul just fleshes this out in his own life. Philippians, now go down to Philippians 3. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count 
everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's no longer about Paul. He had a lot of things that he, it could have been about him for. A lot of things he could have grasped at. All those accolades, though, he says, mean nothing now compared to the value of knowing Jesus. They're all gone. He died to all of them for the sake of Jesus and now calls them trash in comparison to knowing Jesus. It's garbage. And and friends, we know sometimes it's easy to build a life on garbage, things that aren't going to last forever. But Paul says in Christ that it all changes. His life is now shaped around Christ. And he talks about what that looks like. Keep going in verse 9. And, he, and being found in him, I'm in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Beloved, that's justification by faith alone. No righteousness in me, only through faith in Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Look at verse 10. That, there's that, that again. I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is a life of love. A life that knows both the power of the resurrection of Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the Christian life. In reality, it's shaped like Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Paul knows that we've we got to taste both. And there's great hope for there, for there if you'll have it. There's great hope for you there. That when you suffer, you know this is not random. That I'm, I'm leaning into now the life of Jesus. And I can look for a resurrection. Not just the final resurrection, but even a current one. What's he doing now in my life? An opportunity to experience the power of Jesus' resurrection, as Paul says, as we experience the fellowship of his sufferings. Some of you have experienced the fellowship of his sufferings in particular ways this past year. I think of families in particular that have seen it wave after wave after wave. I think of families that are in the middle of loving children that are physically or, and or mentally disabled. And it's, it's a picture of one-way love. It's not reciprocated. It's not returned. It doesn't end. Day in, day out, the care continues. What a beautiful thing. Enduring through the power of the resurrection. That's how they do it. It's on display. How else could they make it through? Not just make it, but make it through as worshipers of Jesus Christ. Full of joy in him. That's who they are. Friends, that's resurrection power at work in this place. And it is beautiful. And so in, in a way, we see, that, we see what Paul means when he says suffering is like a gift. And I, and I say that with trepidation and trembling but that's what Paul says Philippians 1 you can flip up there in your 
just flip over and look at Philippians 1, verse 29. <clears throat> for it has been granted, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's been granted. He puts suffering right alongside the gift of belief. They go hand in hand because believing on Jesus and following Jesus go hand in hand. We suffer in pursuit of him. We suffer with others who suffer. We suffer with hope that we will be raised in his timing, in his way. And we suffer in faith that others would see the beautiful love of Jesus in us. Paul is so provocative in the way he says this in Colossians 1. Don't turn there, just listen. Colossians, this is one of those, if you're doing Bible reading in a year, you may have a question mark by this verse. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I mean, he just comes out and says it, doesn't he? That sounds a lot like Jesus. There's nothing lacking in the atoning afflictions of Christ and his sufferings. But the Colossians are witnessing in person what it looks like for Paul to suffer for their sake. They're seeing it. He's repeating the pattern of Jesus for the sake of the body. It's for them he's doing it. They're benefiting from it. Like the mom who, who just gives away her her free time, her, her date night, her, her maybe the dreams that she had to do this or that with a career, her sleep to, her, to care for her disabled child. She suffers for him, for her, and then for us to see and praise God. The daughter who cares for continually her ailing parent. That we see the parents who, who continue to love the confused and discouraged child that they have while believing all the while that Christ is enough. It pictures the love of Christ for us. And so we're called to do the same in whatever situation we find ourselves in. What, what might that be for you? I'm not telling you what it is. I'm just giving you, this is the picture, this is the vision, and then how does that look like in your life and in, and in my life? And here's where I'm going to jump around a little bit as we're, as we're getting close to being done. And if you want to follow, around, follow along with me, let me encourage you to do that. If not, you can just listen. I want to make this point first, okay, as we're seeking, okay, if this is true, what, what do I do? How do I, how do I go on? And, and, and uh, maybe is this anywhere else in Scripture that we could see? So if you turn over one page or a couple, couple pages in your Bible, you'll be at Ephesians 5. And um, here, I want to just make this point that love is not the center. It's the love of Christ that compels us, but love is not the center. Christ is the center. And that's very important to note. It's the love of Christ that compels us. It's not some vague notion of love. If love becomes central, we lose our bearings and begin to incarnate into sin. To bear with unrepentant sin. And that is not what we're called to do. 
So look at Ephesians 5. I think it's a really stark picture of it here. Verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God. There it is. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There, so there it is. That's what we've been saying so far in this message. This is the love that compels us, the love of Christ. The life of Christ should be lived out every day in his people. But, verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It is not loving to coddle someone in their sin. It's unloving to ignore or turn a blind eye to sin in the church. It will water down our witness. It will spread like yeast in bread. It will confuse the community around us about Jesus. It would be unloving for us not to practice church discipline, not to hold membership to a high standard, to affirm people in their sin. We have to go with Jesus. We have to go with the scripture. So we're going to speak the truth about the sinfulness of all the things that our culture holds out and says, if you're really loving, then you're going to, you're going to affirm these things. If you really love people, you're going to affirm the LGBTQ movement. And, and, and churches are doing that all over the place. And they're going to continue to do that. And I, and I want to just say, I think their motivation is love. But it's not centered on Christ. We must center our love on Christ and speak the truth in love to sin. And call for, this is a hospital for sinners. We don't want to say you don't have a disease. No, you need to come in. Come into Christ. We need you to come into him. Don't miss the foundation. So it's not love, it's Jesus. In his love, he came to die for what? Sin. Not that we would still live in it. He didn't die because we're okay. We needed a savior. And he will save you. He will forgive you. He will free you. He will give you righteousness that you cannot have on your own. Come to Jesus. Watch your life change. This is a place for, for anyone and everyone who will come to Jesus and submit to him. Secondly, now, getting our minds around Philippians 2. The story leads us kind of inevitably to reaching out and descending, incarnating with others. And I just want to go to uh, 1 Corinthians. So turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. I want to keep you flipping so, there's, so you wake up. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. You're familiar with this passage, but now just reading it in light of the, the work of Jesus, I think it has a new kind of weight to it. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
So don't tune out of the sermon. This is really, really important. There's so much here, but I just want you to see the DNA of Jesus in Paul's missional theology. He's free. He doesn't have to do this, but he doesn't, he doesn't grasp at that freedom. He, he goes and, and makes himself low, a servant for the good of others, Jews, Gentiles, and the weak. So Paul incarnates with them to win them, all for the sake of the gospel, entering into someone else's world for the sake of Jesus. Now, I just want to give you two, two applications for that. The poor and the lost. And, I, and I, I'm thinking weak. To the weak, I became weak, and I think particularly about um, the opportunity that we have in this place to minister to the poor. One author puts it this way. If you think, what would, what would stop me from, from loving someone in that situation? What would stop me from it? One author puts it this way. Uh, Paul becomes weak in that he, one of the ways he becomes weak in loving the weak is he crosses the smell line. In the ancient world, most people did not have access to public baths and might wash just once a week, or I'm sorry, once a month. Once a month or not at all. But Paul crosses the smell line because that's what the Son of God did. In the West, continuing, until about 1900, it was the smell that divided the weak from everyone else. George Orwell said it this way, quote, Here you come to the real secret of class distinctions in the West. The real reason why European middle class cannot, without a hard effort, think of a working class man as his equal. It is summed up in four frightful words which people nowadays are wary of uttering, but which were bandied about quite freely in my childhood. The words were, the lower classes smell. So, beloved, if we're going to display the love of Christ in this community, we need to be able, be ready to cross the smell line. This comes from someone who bathes at least two, two times a day, just so you know. We need to enter into the filth and the headache and the ugliness that many live in here, right around the corner. You'll find, you get here early in the morning, you'll find sleeping bags uh, piled up over here at the front of the building. It was, it was smell that alerted us to, the, to an intruder that had come into the church months ago. Smell. Just remember this. On our best day, before righteous God, our sin stinks. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. As Jesus came into the filth to save us, he calls us to go and love those who may really be hard to love, but who need to know him. How might that happen in our church this year? I hope you'll join me in praying and seeing it done by God's grace. The other piece to mention, it goes along with it, is the lost. And here I'm thinking of those who are far from God, far from the gospel, those in our midst and those um, across the world who could live their whole lives and never hear the gospel and die and go to hell. Don't you sense Paul's zeal and urgency, his desperation to get the gospel to all kinds of people? Just just search your heart. Is Is that zeal present in me? Why not, if not? That urgency This is an urgent man who's willing to do all these things. Is that there? Is it in you? Again, not romantic. This is a death to do this. To go go to the mission field. Go across the street and share the gospel with someone from a different culture or language group. Whatever. It's a death. It's entering into the world, different language, different culture, to bring the good news. To go and love and proclaim life in darkness. Don't you see how closely connected this is? 
to our knowing Jesus. I'm always struck with how aware I am, and, and most of us are, of the crazy theology in the book of Romans, crazy in a good way, deep theology. But it's a support letter for missions, isn't it? It's a letter to get people to go, to, to support him to go where the gospel isn't. So our, our theology has to fuel mission. The gospel sins. So, so just who's going? Who can't sleep at night because of the reality of lostness? Who's compelled to go where there is no hope? Willing to die. To bring Jesus to the lost. Who's willing to send them? Paul looks to Jesus again as he teaches the Corinthians about money and generosity. He's writing to encourage them to complete the offering they had begun to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And he uses the Macedonians as an example of generosity, specifically because they were poor and did this during an affliction. Their their circumstances were dire, and yet they gave generously beyond their means. Paul actually refers to their gift as an act of grace in 2 Corinthians 8-7. And then he turns to the Corinthians and he looks again at the gospel as the basis for their generosity. 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The gospel produces a life of love. And I would, I would add a generous life of love. It compels us and creates generosity. Not because we're looking at our finances and say, I think we can afford to do this. It's because we're we're continuing to look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? The Macedonians didn't look at their checkbook and say, I think we're a good place to give. They were in affliction and they they had nothing in poverty and they gave over and above what they had. I think if we want to really track down selfish ambition in our hearts, we can often start with our bank accounts. Christ enriched us through his poverty, but often we have a really hard time enriching others. Committing to regular sacrificial giving to the church, to special opportunities for mission, to support, to be generous to meet needs that come up in our church. It's not a sermon on money, our money management and giving that we need. It's just a reminder of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything flows from a heart that is either full of grace or full of selfish ambition. We ought to be the most generous people on the planet. Keep looking to the generosity of Christ. The love of Christ compels us. And that includes our money. To give cheerfully, joyfully, and sacrificially for the glory of God. Now, we could stop at any one of these passages and do a sermon series. And I'm sorry that I've done a mini one of those already. But this year, I hope that this vision of love, the specific love of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would flood our hearts and our minds. That the new in the new commandment that Jesus gave us would ring true in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. We're to love one another with the love of Christ. That's Philippians 2 love. That's actually the foundation for our unity. And that's, that's where we're gonna end this morning. Just back at Philippians 2. You can turn there or just listen. 
That's Paul's point. Before he goes into the famous section in verses 6 to 11, before the specific commands in verses 3 to 5, he starts the entire section in verses 1 and 2 like this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, I think we would say, okay, yes, that's, that's there. Complete my joy by being church of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So it's not just me individually getting excited about the love of Christ that that God is after. It's after us as a church to be unified, to have the same love, the mind of Jesus together. We're about to sing, and I just want you to make this song a prayer. I think it's going to be familiar to most of you. It's, it's called Build My Life. And it begins by meditating on the worthiness and beauty of Christ. And then it's going to connect that beauty and love of Christ with the life that we want to live for him. And this, the simple prayer is this as you sing. We want to build our lives upon your love. We want to build our lives upon your love. It's a firm foundation. And that's, that's my prayer for us. That's the prayer for this sermon. For me, for you, for our church. That this would do more than just motivate us but it would save us and shape us that the gospel of Jesus Christ would lead to lives of Christ-like love. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Comparatively, how easy it is to preach a sermon and, and, and in comparison to live out the truth that's here. And so, Lord, I just join with this uh, beloved congregation and ask that you would teach us. And, Lord, we confess we don't, we're not here. We haven't arrived, not even close. And so we need your power and strength at work in us. We pray that you would show it, and we pray, Lord, that we would build our lives on the love of Christ. Would you do a miraculous work Would you do a work in our hearts that spills over into those around us? All for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.